traveling and as he's visiting, bless him with a good visit and safe travels. And finally, Lord, as we open your word, uh, we ask that you open our eyes to see wonderful things as we continue looking at how we travel from cross to crown. Amen. Okay, so once again, we're in um, page 17. That puts us at 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12. Good morning, Lois. We saved you a seat. There's uh, all the handouts for the rest of the study around the table now. So if you want to grab either one of the booklets or some of the, the loose sheets, help yourself. All right, we had our opening prayer. Now we're going to open up now to chapter 4. And I titled this section, Rejoice While Suffering. And the, the first part is Rejoice in Fiery Trials. The unbelieving world is surprised. We saw that in chapter 4, verse 4, right? They're surprised you don't join with them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So the unbelieving world is surprised that believers don't join with them in their sinful living. But believers should not be surprised, and that's verse 12 here, that the unbelieving world hates them. Let's read uh, verses 12 to 13 now. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter makes it clear that believers should expect to bear a cross. He calls them fiery ordeals. Can you share some reasons why it's comforting for all God's people to be warned of trials ahead of time? Because they're going to come. We know they're going to come. So you can arm yourself with the word and the promise of, of uh, the good things to come, bearing up under it, prayer, to ask for strength, to be in the spirit. So you, you're prepared because you see the, the good things to come after too. It's kind of like you're driving down uh, the highway and there it says construction ahead and you know there's going to be some rough roads and difficult driving and it says construction next 10 miles but you're on a 10 billion mile journey so those 10 miles might seem kind of rough but you know what's after it smooth driving for the rest of the way so it's comforting to know what's ahead also the fact that God knows that right so if you face trials it's not like God dropped the ball and Christians are like, whoa, God, what's happening here? Why am I facing this suffering? I, I, I thought being a Christian meant that everything would be fine. Well, God did not fail you. He told you it was coming. So that, that, that alone should be a comfort, I think. And I think what Bill says is what Peter points us to, right? He says, you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You get past the construction zone and you're like, okay, that was it. His glory is now revealed. We've reached the, the destination. Other thoughts there? It might be a little com comforting to other Christians to know that you're not the only one. Right. So this fiery trial that has come on you, that happened to these Christians in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, and it's happening again, and it's happening all around the world. Uh, so you're not alone. Don't think God has singled you out to have some extraordinary ordeal that others aren't also facing. And uh, I like you brought that out because Peter does that. If you look at the 
Uh, next chapter, he's going to say, your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of trials. And here, look at verse 13. Who else bore suffering with us? We're not alone. You know, you really, today, you don't see it too much individually. You know, individual persecution. <clears throat> but as a whole, we're constantly being attacked. You know, the church itself. Um, right. Our, our freedoms are getting attacked. You know, and like eliminating things from schools, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what you are seeing in, in our time, in our culture. Is yeah, today. The erosion of Christian liberty in the sense that the world will tolerate or you know, think it's a good thing if people are Christians. Slowly, Christians are becoming the persecuted group in our culture. And even though we don't see it like back in these days where people were individually tortured and put on fire and sawed in half and everything, uh, if the church as a whole gets attacked to the point where that can start happening, yeah, it could, you know, we, but we kind of don't see the seriousness of it when it's just the church as a whole. You know, it's just another political loud mouth or something. But. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the types of sufferings Christians have faced have been extreme, uh, just when you look at it. And we are, yes, in a, in a degree, facing some ordeals, but I don't know if we'd call them fiery ordeals just now, right? Uh, compared to the fiery ordeals that many Christians have faced. Um, okay. Also, we, we were just talking about, that's a good point. We were just talking about, too, the you're not alone. Other Christians suffer. Look at verse 13. You participate in the sufferings of Christ. So not only have other Christians suffered, but then there's Christ who himself bore suffering. I guess if you hear noise now, you're going to be hearing what Ryan experienced yesterday during the music <laughs> lessons. Uh, the, the roofers are at work. So, yeah, if you're listening to our recording this week, we are having our fellowship hall roof redone, so you're going to hear a little bit of extra noise in the recording. That's just for special effect. Okay, um, regarding the fiery trials, look at the side notes. Uh, if you're listening to the, the podcast here, our handout, page 17, has a whole listing. And actually, I took this listing right from uh, the People's Bible. Mark Jeske did a, a great job of doing a concise overview of the types of sufferings that people face from Peter's time and on. So just to kind of jump through that to give us an idea, you got the Emperor Nero. Remember how he was ruling during the time that Peter writes. He actually ruled from 54 to 68 AD. And Nero directly persecuted and blamed Christians as the scapegoat of society. Um, if you guys think it's too noisy, we can always move to the sanctuary if you want to do that. But is it tolerable? I want to hear them work. <laughs> sure, we want, to, we want to make sure they're working up there, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could see if you were trying to teach some rhythm, that could kind of disrupt a little bit. <laughs> You just tell them, if you don't pay attention, those are the monsters in the attic that want to come and get you. 
We don't want to scare him too bad. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Nero, he was ruined during the time of Peter. He was very violent. In the year 64, he chose to blame Christians directly for a terrible fire. Probably heard about that. When he started? Yeah, which apparently, evidently, was probably somehow related to actually he was the cause. And then hundreds of Christians were arrested, convicted, covered in skins of wild animals, torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified, coated with pitch, and set on fire. Some were disemboweled. Just horrible. <clears throat> basically, when you treat someone that horribly, you basically lower them to a status as below human, right? Uh, kind of the way that the Holocaust happened. When, when humans are treated in such a way, pretty soon you start to regard them as, oh, they're, they're really subhuman, that we can treat them in such a way. Okay, and then after that, you've got the Emperor Domitian, 81 to 96, demanded all his subjects recognize him as Lord and God. Well, whether people really believe that or not was a matter, but we can see how a Christian wouldn't you know, submit to that. That was uh, during the time when the Apostle John was supervisor of the congregations in Asia. He was exiled unto Patmos. Under the Emperor Trajan, the regional governors knew they had full authority to arrest, punish, even kill Christians just for bearing the Christian name. In 107 AD, while he was traveling through Antioch, he had a bishop, Ignatius, <coughs> arrested and taken to Rome and thrown to wild beast. Simeon, head of the church in Jerusalem, was killed. 112 AD, Pliny, governor of Bithynia, wrote to Trajan for being, wrote to him for advice on how to deal with people accused of being Christians. He was worried that this, not like this, rapidly spreading movement Contagious superstition is not confined to the cities, but has spread infection among the neighboring villages and country. So basically, Christianity is treated like it's a disease that's ruining the land, which forbade, and then there was an edict forbidding Christians to assemble. He put uh, two sl female slaves who were Christians to torture, so to be more likely to tell the truth. Um, these are all direct records that we have. Under Emperor Antonius P Pius, that's 138, the governor of the province of Asia arrested Polycarp. He's a well-known church father. He was an 86-year-old bishop of Smyrna and ordered him to curse Christ and to sacrifice incense to the emperor. Of course, Polycarp refused, was tied to the stake in a stadium and a huge pile of brush at his feet. He still refused and loudly confessed his faith in a prayer and was burned alive. Emperor Marcus Aurelius, just like Christians. They were executed in Rome. Dozens were tortured. Actually, got to flip the page here because it just goes on. <coughs> Christians were also killed in Vienna, in Lyons, and Gaul, that is in France. Bishop Pontius, 90 years old, died in jail of wounds received from torture. Aurelius authorized his agents to kill any professing Christian according to law. In other words, with a show of perfect legality. And then 193 to 200, the emperor made baptism a crime. In 203, it started to reach Africa where Christians were killed in Carthage. And then the emperor in 249 ordered every citizen to offer an act of homage to the gods of Rome. Christians were beheaded, burned at the stake, thrown to the beast. Six years later, the emperor ordered conformity to Roman religious rites and Christians once again resisted. And so the Roman bishop and four deacons were killed. Bishop of Carthage beheaded. And in Spain, you see they're burned alive. Still, people kept turning to Christ. Final persecution was the worst. So Diocletian, now the year is 300, ordered the destruction of Christ all Christian churches. 
the dissolution of all Christian congregations, the confiscation of all Christian property, the exclusion of Christians from public office, the death to any Christian caught in public assembly, and a cathedral immediately burned to the ground, arrest and torture. They were infuriated by resistance, and he ordered all governors to seek out every Christian and use any method to compel appeasement to the gods. After his death, his uh, partners... Now that's not persecution, that's just our, our roofing project once again. Many martyrs in every province, and this happened, and perhaps 1,500 people on record were killed and many times tortured. Public opinion soon turned as people saw these Christians. And I like how he concludes here. The Christian writer Tertullian was right. The blood of martyrs is seed. And by 311, Christianity was recognized as a fully lawful religion. But 300 years, nearly 300 years of persecution preceded that. So when Peter says on page 17, if you turn back now, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're facing. Centuries would follow before the Christians could actually begin to feel free from those fiery trials, not just in Rome, but all the way from Spain to Africa to every part of the Roman Empire. Esther was a Roman Empire pretty much the whole known world at the time? <clears throat> they, knew, they knew about the far reaches of Asia, um, didn't have much interaction with them, uh, but they knew about those lands. Uh, but they didn't know about um, North and South America and Australia or any of the many of the Pacific Islands and so forth. But yeah, much of the, the regularly communicated world well, at this time. Most of Europe too, uh, even Great Britain. Yep. So how do those trials compare with what you face today as a follower of Christ? We're lucky. <laughs> we have freedom to assemble. We have freedom to hold public office. And not only hold public office, but still use our Christian faith in our public office and be open about it. We have the freedom to proclaim the gospel in every part of this nation. We have the freedom to proselytize and convert people. Conversely, we have the, the freedom to be apathetic about our faith. Right. Those, they didn't, you couldn't be apathetic about your faith. Yeah, if, if, it was, if it was illegal to be baptized, you didn't just get baptized and say, oh, now I'm part of the church and forget about it. You took your baptism as a, a real serious thing that if you're going to do it, uh, you're actually a Christian. Not just, I'm, I'm going I'm to convert to the Christian faith so I can die. You, you would convert knowing the great dangers and you couldn't be apathetic about it. Some believers did turn aside because of these persecutions, but many <clears throat> suffered despite. And like Peter says, you participate in the sufferings of Christ. It's going to be a fiery ordeal. And he says, has come on you to test you. So that's what I wanted to discuss next. Um, the second half of this, this verse. That has come on you to test you. Enduring suffering is a reoccurring theme in this letter. So we've seen that quite a bit that Peter says you're going to endure suffering. He indicates our suffering serve as a time of testing. Let's look at the following verses and discuss what we learned from 1 Peter to help us when tests and trials come our way. So we are going to be tested, maybe not the same way, perhaps in coming years or another generation we will, but 
What will help us when we face our test? And what helps Christians throughout history as they face this test? 1 Peter 1.5, regarding our safety. So what do we learn about our safety as we face our various trials? Okay. And don't you think sometimes he tests us? Because if everything is good, we just have a tendency as humans to just go on our merry way and forget about the Lord. But if, if he tests you, you turn to the Lord and you realize, I've really messed up. Yeah, it causes us to rely on our God when we are tested. So you said he's always with you. In verse 5 it says, Through faith are shielded by God's power. God's power isn't going to necessarily promise that we keep free from all troubles, but those troubles cannot take away our status, our standing, our inheritance. We're, we're shielded by God. And in, in the same way that God told the devil and his angels he couldn't touch Job to some extent, he can say still today, nope, they're under my care. You can only go so far in your, your harm and your testing of my people. And he knows what we can bear. We're shielded by his power. Okay, how about um, chapter 2, verse 6? Or, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. What do we know about the outcome of our testing? There he says, For a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. So what's the outcome of our testing? My, my Bible says the first four words are, you rejoice in this. Yeah. We will rejoice. That's actually the, the theme I have for this whole section. I don't know if we'll get that far with the noise, but we rejoice in our suffering. So one of the outcomes is, even as we face suffering, Christians display their faith. And as they display their faith, they give glory to God now and into eternity. So Peter says, when, when Christ comes, we're going to praise him. And even now, as we're facing those trials, it's, it's like um, in the People's Bible, that quote there by Mark Jeske, the blood of the martyrs is seed. As we face trials, as we endure, it's a witness. It gives glory to God. Okay, what about a result of our suffering? 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. So what's one result of our suffering? Yeah. So we know as we endure, as we persevere, it's not so we can earn heaven. It's rather glorify the God who's given us that gift. How about our example? 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. So what's our example as we're tested in suffering? Yeah, Christ, who himself, when he suffered, entrusted himself to the Father 
didn't fight back against evil and retaliate evil for evil, did not return insult for insult. So we kind of see the way we are to suffer is endure. And as you endure, show people you're not going to endure because you know you're going to win out you know, by physically defeating your enemy, but by trusting your God. Okay, what is our payback? 1 Peter 3.9. Yeah, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, what do we repay it back with? Blessings. Repay evil with blessing. So as we're tested, part of your testing is when you suffer, not only are you going to endure it, but how are you going to respond to it, to the people that persecute you? Are you going to be able to show the love of Christ to them and actually bless those who persecute you? Bless and do not curse. That's a powerful witness too. Now that, why don't you hate me back? Well, Christ. What's our attitude and our hope as we're tested in suffering? That's a, we're going to jump ahead of where we've read now, 1 Peter 5, 6. But since we're on the theme, I thought it'd be good to kind of look at that. Yeah, our attitude as we suffer is humble yourselves under God's hand. It may seem like you're under the devil's sway and under his control, but you're under God's hand. Humble yourself. He's still in control. You know that. And what's our hope as we suffer? That God may lift you up. So he will test us for a time, but he is going to, according to his promise, lift us up, according to his working and mercy. And also looking ahead, who is our true enemy as we suffer? It's not God. Yeah, 1 Peter 5, 8 reads, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we've got to remember as we suffer, God's not against us. God is for us. But we do have the devil looking to, as we suffer, cause us to stumble. And in the, that great temptation of weakness during suffering, cause us to fall away. What's our company in suffering? First Peter 5, 9. Someone want to read the second half of that verse? Yeah, so this is not a, you know, misery loves company. This is rather, brother, sister, you're not alone. As he says, the family of believers, your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. So we're, we are not alone in our suffering. And finally, 1 Peter 5.10, God's response to all of our suffering and our trials Yeah. After you've suffered a little while, God is the one who's going to restore, strengthen, make firm, steadfast, and strong. So in this test, this trial, the whole picture that Peter gives throughout his letter is, Christian, you're going to suffer. Don't be surprised. You're not alone. Your enemy, the devil's doing this. And it's a time of testing, but your testing's going to give glory to God as you put your hope in God, display a Christ-like attitude in your suffering. And in the end, just as Christ went from cross to crown, you're going to go from cross to crown because God himself will restore you, lift you up, strengthen you. All right. Um, I'm guessing some of your lessons yesterday you cut a little bit short, right? Just a little bit? No. <laughs> No, of course not. 
So I don't know if they're going to get any quieter. Are you guys okay if we just call this short today? So this is going to be a bit distracting. All right. We made it through some suffering. And I think what we'll do next week, if, if they're still at it next week, we'll see. Um, we might just move to, they might be further down in the building as well. We might just move to the sanctuary. We'll see. But we'll, we'll meet here next week and see if we have to relocate then. How about that? All right. Thanks for listening. If you're tuned in, um, we're breaking here. Next week, we'll record the second half of this page. Uh, the reason we're cutting short is maybe you can hear it, maybe you can't. There's a lot of background noise <laughs> taking place as they're doing our roof here. Let's close with a prayer. Lord, there are times when throughout history your people have faced great suffering, sometimes literally a fiery ordeal, at other times great insult and suffering for the sake of your name. Help us to rejoice as we participate in the sufferings of Christ and join with fellow believers throughout history, humbling ourselves, trusting in you, knowing that you will, according to your gracious working and promises, lift us up. And you will carry us with Christ from cross to crown. Amen. All right, thanks everyone. We'll pick it up again next week. opportunity as we've been given this gift to spend time together in your word. Use this time to feed our faith, to build us up, and to strengthen us for when we face trials that we can rejoice even as we face suffering. Amen. So that's why I have us on this side of the room so that uh, the hammering, the, the music, and mostly for us it's the air compressor right outside that door don't give us too much distraction. All right, this is a part two of the Rejoice While Suffering section, which is 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. And actually, to start off today, we're going to reread 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. Since last time there was all the pounding, I figured we should probably reread it, right? The roof is, looks like this section is all completed. They just have that part to finish yet. So verses 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So I mentioned the contrast that we saw last time. The unbelieving world is surprised we don't join with them in sin, but we shouldn't be surprised that that brings flack to us and persecution since we don't join in that. And Peter says, that's not something strange or unordinary. So far, Peter has mentioned his readers are suffering griefs and all kinds of trials. That's chapter 1, verse 6. We saw how they're being tempted by evil desires. So not just suffering from the world, but against their own sinful flesh they struggle. Verse, chapter 2, verse 11. They suffer as under authority, which they have to submit to, even though the authority hates them at times. That's chapter 2, verse 13. They endure the ignorant talk of foolish people. That's chapter 2, verse 15. They're bearing up under unjust suffering, 219. They're suffering for doing good. That's in chapter 220 and 317. They're being insulted. That's chapter 3, verse 9. 
They're suffering in the body. That's chapter 4, verse 1. They're having abuse heaped on them. That's chapter 4, verse 4. And they are insulted. 4, verse 14. We're going to see even more as we go on, but that's just up to this point, all the times that Peter mentions the various trials that they suffer. So you can see why I chose the theme from cross to crown, because Peter's trying to help explain suffering and why we endure and how we endure the suffering of our lives as Christians. But despite all that, all that repetition of the different types of suffering, he says it shouldn't seem strange that they face all this. Instead, they were participating in the same sufferings as Christ. Can you list some examples from the Gospels of how Christ endured all these same types of pains? So look at that listing of types of suffering. How did Christ endure each one of those? Got one, Ryan? Yeah, so he was tempted by not so much his own evil desires, but the devil's tempting him to evil desires to turn aside from God. So he faced temptation. And if you really are from Christ, evil, come on down from the cross. You know, even in the hour of death, right? Is the insult. And the, the temptation to turn against God and to turn against the Father's plan was always there. Yeah. Well, Peter himself, you will never die. <laughs> right. So the temptation to, like Peter, be surprised that you should have to suffer and to fight against that suffering. I wonder if he had to deal with air compressors as he was preaching over the, the Sea of Galilee and to the crowds. No, but he had the Sanhedrin. Right, the, murmur, the murmuring of the Sanhedrin. How about another one? Just insulted. Okay, so when you are insulted, it's the same as what Peter says in chapter 4, verse 13. You participate in the sufferings of Christ. He was insulted. Um, he was... Um, ridiculed for his lowly origin from Nazareth and that he would be someone to carry God's word. He was insulted that um, he was claiming to be a king as they struck him as his passion was underway and his great suffering. He yeah. denied him. Okay, so he was abandoned. I could add that to the list. Well, when he was arrested, yeah, and then they all flee. Right, so being deserted. His disciples were surprised, even though he told them that was coming. Well, every time the Pharisees came up to him with a question, it was pretty much an insult, I think. Yeah, it was clearly unjust suffering, and it was an insult that was not deserved. So he was constantly mocked, you know, who hit you, prophesy, uh, that type of, or Herod's troops as well. Certainly, we could say he suffered in the body, right? All kinds of trials. They were, they were in right. So he didn't return insult for insult, as Peter says. As you participate in the sufferings of Christ, don't retaliate. And as he was suffering on the cross, it was at the hands of the authorities. 
both uh, the Sanhedrin, the spiritual authorities that turned him over, and the governing authorities, the Romans. Unjust suffering at the hand of the rulers. So once again, if you face unjust suffering, if you face insult, if you face physical pain, temptation, all kinds of trials, you're participating in the sufferings of Christ, Peter says. Yeah. Uh, having abuse heaped on them, both physical and emotional, mental abuse heaped on Christ throughout his ministry. So, okay. So we got the examples from the Gospels on how Christ endured the same thing that Peter says the Christians in Asia Minor were, were going to face and had been facing. Uh, there's a quote here from Luther's, one of Luther's sermons. Can you explain this quote? He who does not bear this suffering with rejoicing becomes sullen and wants to be angry with God, will suffer here and will suffer there forever. So is Luther right that if you don't rejoice right now, it's not going to turn to anger to God, but condemnation? Yeah, because what anger turns into malice, malice turns into hate, and, and what are those, all those steps? So, I'm, oh, go ahead. We forget that it's our fault that we're suffering. It's not God's. When you say he wants to be angry with God, it's sure. God's fault. Right, it's not God's fault. We forget that it's not God's fault when we suffer. It's, it's our own fault. Maybe because of some specific sin or just because we are sinners in a sin-cursed world. Yeah. So Luther, I think, probably witnessed that in his time because he had a lot of companions that were persecuted along with him and they had to bear up under suffering, put their lives on the line, and they became afraid, and they, they lost the gospel because of it. So it bears fruit for all Christians to know, when you suffer, you've got two options. You can either rejoice, or you can fall away from faith. Can you find, uh, look at these verses again, verses 12 to 13. Can you find the implied resurrection comfort in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13? Well, it's just the opposite of what the last part says. He wants to be angry, will suffer here, will suffer there forever. So just the opposite is true. Okay, so yeah, you're getting to the Luther quote. In the Luther quote, he says there's a eternal anger and suffering. The converse of that would be you're rejoicing forever. Where do we find that in Peter's verses that we're rejoicing forever? So you share in the sufferings of Christ, but what's going to happen in the end? Yeah. Rejoice now, because you're going to be overjoyed when Christ in his glory is revealed. So, yeah, Christ suffered, and we participate in his sufferings, but where is he now? Peter's already, you know, starting to show us in just this verse that short condensation of cross to crown, how Christ, who suffered, is now in glory, and we're going to see his glory. So when you suffer, where should you put your eyes? Not just on the sufferings of Christ, but on the glory of Christ and the glory that will soon be yours. So if, if I ever were going to say there was a verse that I, I took this theme from, this is one of them. It's not the verse, but Peter is saying, participate in Christ's sufferings because his glory is coming. So we will be glorified with him. Whether it's 
you know, any of those types of sufferings that we listed, or that Peter listed to this point, turn it all around and be overjoyed rather than overwhelmed by suffering. Pastor, is he talking more of suffering for being a Christian or is he this, or just general human suffering? The sufferings of Christ uh, would be, not that we're adding to his sacrifice, but um, it's the fact that we are persecuted because of him, so for his sake. And I think, in a way, you can generally include all suffering, but mostly I think Peter is focused on the temptation to toss aside suffering for the sake of, you know, toss aside Christ and you'll toss aside suffering. So suffering as a Christian, and he's, he's said that a couple times, you know, if you suffer as a, a meddler or whatever, that's okay, but if you suffer as a Christian, Rejoice that you bear that name, he's told us. Certainly we'll have, like, like Job, you know, just general suffering. But Peter's speaking to believers that are being persecuted, insulted. So if you look at the, uh, the listing there, and actually you have to include under that, don't you, the being tempted by evil? Christians alone can suffer as they combat. They have that conflict, the spirit versus the flesh. Now that's a suffering you have because of a Christian, that you, you fight you wage war against the sinful flesh and the world and the devil. Okay, so when he says you'll be overjoyed when Christ is revealed, what's going to give us joy then? Just real briefly, let's describe that joy. We're going to be in heaven. Everything's going to be great. Yeah, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. Everything's going to be great. We're going to be with Christ. And this body that is born suffering will be glorified. Perfect. Okay, let's go on. So how about suffering according to God's will? Let's compare with uh, 1 Peter 3.17 and 4.19. So we're going to need to read verses 14 to 19. Let's read that. If you are insulted, and this kind of gets to... Uh, is this, what kind of suffering are we talking about here, right? So, Martha, this is right away answering your question, isn't it? Verse 14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. It's actually, what we just read is our text for Confirmation Sunday at the end of this month. But we'll, we'll finish off the rest of it here. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will, that's kind of striking, right? This is God's will. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We need to compare. It says, according to God's will. Look at 1 Peter 3.17. Turning back to chapter here. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And also 4.19 This is according to God's will. 
How does knowing God wills our suffering give us strength to endure it? Okay, if he wills it, it's for good and he's not going to leave us. God disciplines those he loves. We're told in scripture if we're disciplined by God, it's because he cares about us. As a father disciplines children, he knows it will lead to strengthening for those who trust in him. Yeah, Peter's not throwing this out there. It's God's will to, to indict God and say he's, he's causing your suffering, but rather to comfort us, to say, God, your faithful creator is the one that allows this suffering to come into your life, sends it your way. Pastor, and if we didn't suffer, we'd probably fall away easier. But, I mean, it's kind of how I look at it sometimes. It, you know, when you suffer for the gospel, you think about the gospel. Right. And if you just go along not even thinking about it, that's when that's more dangerous, I think. Right. I think there's truth to that. Uh, and I think Peter got into that in chapter 1, that your, your suffering is like the testing of something, the testing of our faith which is more precious than gold, which is burned by fire. It refines us and shows us for what we are. And also, in a way, if we didn't face it, never had any testing, how do we know we, we can actually stand up to that? When God uh, gave the consequences to Adam and Eve, you will surely die. It will produce thistles and by, by pain and there'll be toil. That was a constant reminder you know, someone, I think it was C.S. Lewis, said pain is God's megaphone to this world so that it wakes us up, so that we stay sober-minded, so we keep our eyes on Him. If we did not face the cross, we often would forget to look to the crown. Okay, um, next paragraph there. The, the devil has not ceased to persecute the church. Modern-day believers are still confronted with fiery ordeals. In her book, In the Lion's Den, Christian writer Nina Shia contends that more Christians were killed in the 20th century than in the past 19 centuries combined. So let that, let that sink in for a bit. So the past 100 years or so, she contends, by her reckoning, more Christians were killed in this world. Let's read, uh, okay, I did have the reading reference there, it's down there. Can you find the, the title for believers in this section? Look at verses 12 to 19. Find the title for believers that gives you comfort. Actually, that should be titles. My page got cut off. And explain why the titles and descriptions of God give you comfort. So let's, let's break that down. Look at verses 12 to 19, chapter 4. What are some comforting titles for believers and some comforting titles for God? Okay, yeah. You know what's kind of interesting? It says, if you suffer as a Christian, I think this is the only one out of two times that that word, that title, Christian, comes up in the Bible. Three. Is it three? Well, you said so here. Oh, three, okay. <laughs> twice in Acts and once here. <laughs> okay, twice in the book of Acts. Yeah, and I wrote this down like three weeks ago, but <laughs> or anybody was seldom, very seldom. Yeah. Three times, and this is, it only comes up in two places, Acts and in First Peter. And the, the three occurrences, this is one of them. You think, you know, of all the ways we use Christian today, we'd find that more often, right? The word Christian. But it's a biblical term, though seldom applied. 
So that's a comforting title. What does it mean when you call someone a Christian, a Christian? Believer in Christ. A follower, a believer of Christ, someone who is connected to Christ. So we are connected to his suffering, yes, but also connected to his glorification. We follow him in everything, not just the down. Well, that's why Luther didn't want people to be called Lutherans. He didn't want them to think, people to think that they're followers of Luther. Right. He wanted them to be called evangelicals or to retain the title Christian only. Definitely, Peter says, praise God that you bear that name, uh, Christian, even though it goes through the cross to the crown. Thank God that you have your goal and you know where your goal is and that he will bring you there. Other titles for Christians that you see? God's righteous. Yeah. Family of God. Family of God. Which verse are you looking at? Uh, it's verse 17 of my Bible. Yeah, so... The time for judgment is to begin with God's household or the family of God. That's a comforting. Even though it's in the context of judgment, we're his family. We're his household. Now, that means we belong to him. That means we have the status and position of children of God. Definitely a comforting title for me. So far we have Christian and God's family. A righteous person? Sure. So you're looking at verse 18. We are called the righteous. And just as you know, the disciples wondered, who can be saved? Well, it's not impossible. God has made us righteous. We bear that title righteous because we are connected to Christ in baptism. As Peter mentioned in chapter 3, we bear that title righteous through faith in Christ. But that's a comforting title too, that God views us as righteous. Holy in his sight. Not because of what we've done, but because of his mercy. My verse 12 starts with dear friends. Okay, there you go. So we have Christians, a family of God, righteous, dear friends. Though we are, um, I think if you look at dear friends in the Greek, I can't remember what the word is there. It might mean beloved. I had beloved in mind. Yeah, I think the, the word there... And the Greek is more closely beloved than just friends. But friends is a fine translation too. Yeah. So we are in this family. We love one another. As Peter writes to loved believers, we are part of the household of God. We are Christians. We are righteous. Any other? It says we are blessed. Okay. You are blessed. So not a title, but a good description. You are blessed. So we are blessed, Christians, the family of God, righteous. So many good titles for us. And then also in this section, look at the, any more before I move on? I just wanted to add on the, the friends part. For me, that's a comfort that I'm not alone. I think when we, a lot of times when we suffer, we think this is only happening to me. Right. Personalize it. So dear suffering Christians, friends, you're, you're not alone. He's going to get into that in the second half of chapter 5 as well. This idea that God's not abandoned us and we have other believers with us. Good. Okay, how about we switch then to the titles of God? What, what titles of God are comforting in this section? God. <laughs> so, yeah, he is God. Faithful creator. Yeah, faithful creator. So he's the one who made us. 
also kind of implying he's got a design, uh, he's got his foreknowledge for us, and he's faithful. He's not a creator who will make a design and not carry it out. Spirit of glory. Okay, the spirit of glory. Yeah, look at verse 4. Or, I'm sorry, verse 14. You got the name of Christ, the spirit of glory, and of God. You got the Trinity there, right? So right there you got God, meaning God the Father, Christ, Jesus, the Son, and the spirit of glory, the Holy Spirit. Peter just weaves in this teaching of the Trinity there. And that's a comforting title, the Trinity. Christ, meaning he's the chosen one, the spirit of glory, that is, we're going to be glorified along with Christ because of the work of the Spirit and God. Okay. Well, Father is implied with family of God. The God's household. Well, who's the father of the household? Who's the head of that household? We have our father. Yep. Definitely some implied titles too. A faithful creator. Yeah, Gary mentioned that one, the faithful creator. Uh, just whenever we focus on God's faithfulness, that should comfort us who have not been faithful, right? Um, just to know he's still faithful even when we are not. And then, yeah, tying in creator with that title. That's all right. I'm sure that the air compressor threw you off, right? <coughs> I just had to give Gary credit. Even if it meant embarrassing you. Well, um, let's see, we got, the title Christian comes up three times, so thanks. Uh, see, I get embarrassed too. Bill, Bill brought out that I forgot that third time. The title Christian comes up in the New Testament three times, twice in X and once here. It reflects a term of derision. In a way, looking down on. So when, whenever Christian comes up in the Bible, it's actually, oh, you're one of those followers, like you're looking down on them. It's not a title of honor when it comes up in the Bible, actually. And that's why Peter has to say, if you bear the title Christian, praise God that you bear that name. It might be a name people look down on in this world, but Peter says God doesn't look down on it. Rejoice, praise your God. If we look at Acts, when they're first called, it's like, oh, they're, they're one of those when they're called Christians, not necessarily, oh, look at them, they're so nice because they're like Christ and they're good people. So Peter says, don't be ashamed that you bear that name. How is Christian sometimes still used as a derisive term today? Well, I had talking with Joe Witness one time when I talking about the Trinity, she Oh, that's right. You're one of those Trinitarians. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right, looking down on you because you believe in that, you know, around the world, throughout history, belief of a triune God revealed in the pages throughout Scripture. Especially in this era where there's a lot of, not just Jehovah's Witnesses, but a lot of Latter-day Saints that look down on Trinitarian beliefs. I misunderstand. They say, you, you think you're so great because you're a Christian, because you go to church and you're so good. 
In that sense, it's a derisive term because they don't understand Christianity. They see it as a work-righteous faith or a faith that is like saying, I'm better than everybody else. When really, Christianity is quite the opposite. I think every time Christians are mentioned in the news, it's never in a positive way. <laughs> right, well, the news will jump on it. Whenever someone bears the title Christ and they they've somehow have failed their calling to, to live in glory to Christ, the news will jump on it. And they, they just delight to point out Christians are sinners. I think they're scared a little bit because they, they too know in their hearts there's something wrong here. And so they try to, I think that today that they try to put down anybody who doesn't believe, you know, that you know, doesn't agree with their sin. Right. A lot of it is guilt. So. Uh, if we take, for example, something like abortion, they'll say Christian radicals are trying to restrict rights because they're, they're afraid of dealing with that, that guilt that comes with killing a child. So they, they have to blame somebody. Who's the scapegoat going to be? Those Christians, those who believe those extreme <coughs> things. Yeah, it, it often is used derisively today. In fact, just step outside your favorite news channel and go to the, the news channel that is often against, against Christianity and you'll find it. Um, step outside your circle and social media to the other half of social media and you'll see how Christians are talked about and treated by much of the world. Uh, there's a, an actor, I won't get distracted by mentioning his name, but he's a pretty well-known actor. He's been in a lot of recent movies and He's been known to go to a Christian church. So Google likes to put him in my newsfeed because I Googled him once. So he comes up in my newsfeed now. And it, it's like, why is he the, the worst rated actor today? And I'm thinking, well, he's in some blockbuster movies. Why is he the worst rated actor? Well, it's because he has Christian roots and he's been known to attend a Christian church. Obviously, that's why they're doing that. <laughs> He's in the Lego movie. I'll leave it at that. You'll, you'll get your report. Find his phone later on the house one day, and you'll find out. I'll report back next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we need to figure out when Peter says rejoice in trials. How? Why? What? What gives us joy in our trials? Look at chapter one. We have to go back to the start of his letter. Why are we going to rejoice? He obviously brought it up in verse 13 here, but what brings us joy, rejoicing in our trials? Let's get to the start of the letter. God has chosen us, yeah. God has called us. And God has called us to receive what? All right, we already start getting into that, that priestly picture, that sprinkling with blood is what the priest would do as he offered up that sacrifice. We've been sprinkled, cleansed by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed, uh, he'll explain, by the blood of Christ. And we are going to receive what God has promised, the inheritance. So our rejoicing should be found in, in God's plan, God's working, God shedding his, his own son, set, shedding his blood, and the Spirit calling us out of darkness into his wonderful light to see what we are going to receive in grace. 
So when Peter says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, he doesn't mean, oh, now I'm paying for my sin and I'll get to glory. He means Christ paid for your sin. Christ has a place for you, an inheritance. You're following Christ through this suffering to the promised glory. So we've got to make sure we keep our eyes on the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns, our inheritance. All right, for further study, at the bottom of the page here I put, we could read Romans 8, 18 and discuss, we'll just do this in brief, discuss what Paul adds regarding our journey from cross to crown. So let's jump to Romans 8, 18, a very similar discussion here by Paul. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul and Peter have the same theology, especially when it comes to this theology of the cross. So Paul has just mentioned earlier in chapter 8 that we are heirs, just like Peter says we receive an inheritance. And then in verse 18 he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So what is Paul adding about our journey from cross to crown? Ending up in heaven. That's what it right, and when we end up in that, he says glory that will be revealed in us. So he's talking about not just in heaven, in paradise, in spirit, but even in body, in a new creation. Oops, sorry. It's not our babysitter, so we're okay. <laughs> so when we are in glory with Christ, how's that going to compare to what we face right now? Yeah, you, you can't even put them on the same scale. That's, that's impossible to weigh them against each other. One is just so great compared to what we're facing now. And a little bit further down in Romans, Yep, as Paul goes on to talk about suffering, he says, we're being helped. The Spirit is there interceding on our behalf. And he also, in that paragraph before that, talks about how the whole world, not just other believers, but all of creation is waiting for this glory to be revealed, starting with us. Kind of like there, though, how God acknowledges that we're weak and it's hard for us. <laughs> so, yeah. kind of like saying, I know this is hard for you, and I'm going to help you. Even though it's a, as he says, our present suffering is compared to eternal glory. And Peter talks about the, the sufferings we face right now for a time. And if you fast forward all the way to the 28, that probably just sums it up all. Right, so then Paul also adds, even as we suffer, what is God working as we suffer? It's the eternal plan, right? We've been called, we've been... No, I mean 28. Yeah, Romans 8, 28. Okay, so God works all things for the good of those who love him. So even the bad things we face, God's going to work to carry out his plan. And then after verse 20, he says, oh, and by the way, that plan means he's going to call you, he's going to justify you, he's going to glorify you. It's, it's an ongoing sequence that God already has worked out, so he's going to work it for your good, yeah, no matter what happens. We could just go on and on. We could study Romans 8 for another hour. He adds so much in there about our present suffering that I thought it was worthwhile jumping to this section uh, that our present suffering 
is not worth comparing with our eternal glory. And even as we face present suffering, there's so many important truths to keep in mind. All right, so that concludes this section, Rejoice While Suffering. I'm going to uh, attach this to the previous study with all the noise as I post it online so that they're still together in the same sections. I think we might have, with our 15 minutes, should we jump into page 19? Do you guys want to do that? Sure. Okay. Right, I think they're, they're done shooting off the, the air compressor, so I'm going to close off the, the section we just did with a prayer so that I can um, conclude that section as I put them together for people to listen to. Lord, we thank you that in our suffering you've blessed us, given us cause for rejoicing and for glory. As we face that suffering, cause us to rejoice, as we know we are participating in not only the sufferings of Christ, but the glory that will be revealed. Amen.